Growing up in the rural parts of Kentucky, more specifically western Kentucky, can bring you a different kind of appreciation for humanity's relationship with trees. They provide lush landscapes, great shade, places to climb and play, and an even more vital process of carbon dioxide exchange for the basis of the existence of carbon-based life forms. Unlike most other things, once a tree is dead, whether it be at the hands of humanity or nature, its usefulness and its life is certainly not over. I had the benefit of growing up in a family of home builders and craftsmen. Our relationship to wood was very utilitarian, providing the essential skeleton for a modern man's need for shelter. Trees transforming into lumber, lumber transforming into structures, all of this evolution of the life of the tree was creating this view of utilitarianism made slightly hazy with the sawdust hanging in the air. It was foundational to my childhood. I appreciated the tree for a place to climb and a thing to help my family make a living. That relationship would change over time, though. Maybe mirroring humanity's evolving understanding of the usefulness of the tree, I was able to correlate trees and subsequently wood to providing warmth for any number of reasons. We had a wood-burning fireplace, and it was a place for us to get warm after playing in the snow or burnt excess wrapping paper at Christmas time, all enabled by our relationship with wood. I mostly took all of that for granted. The thing that really began to change my understanding about how we relate to trees on a more artistic fashion? Tobacco. It may not make any sense yet, but it will. Across the road from my grandfather's shop was a tall tobacco barn, and next to it was a huge pile of sawdust. As a kid, it was a great place to get completely covered in wood shavings while digging, sliding, and playing around as if it were sand. The sawdust provided a vital step in tobacco processing in the fall. If you happen to grow up in western Kentucky, some parts of Virginia, or northwestern Tennessee, you'll know exactly what that pile represented, but for the rest of the world, there's a unique process that happens in this part of the country. While most of the rest of the world harvests tobacco and then hangs it in a barn to air cure, here in the western reaches of the state, we fire ours. This process includes using a blend of sawdust and hickory slabs to effectively smoke the tobacco. It aids in drying and curing process to create a robust flavor profile. For those of us in this part of the country, it creates a haze of smoke that signals the cultural beginning of the fall season. The smell is borderline unlike anything else you'll find across this country. It's smoky and sweet, not quite like the smell coming off of a barbecue pit, maybe a little bit more earthy. If I had a way to effectively capture the essence of the smell, I think the whiskey world would go wild getting a whiff of that. The transformative process was probably the first time that I considered wood to be useful for something other than base needs. It provided flavoring to a secondary product. As I got older, I began to understand how you could also use wood and different wood types to help flavor food in the cooking world. Oak, mesquite, hickory, and fruit woods all impart flavors to savory meats. An entire industry relies on the transformative nature of wood. Some years later, I had the distinct good fortune to meet and marry a woman who comes from a family of woodworkers. She can transform this base ingredient into gallery-quality art pieces, all while producing a secondary pile of aromatic shavings. It's no wonder that over the last millennia, humanity realized the usefulness of wood and the many different ways that we can utilize it to make our lives better. I've said a lot of words to get to this point, and if you haven't picked up on what the trend is today, the next foundational block to producing good quality whiskey is the wood that makes up the barrels. Last week, I said that it is widely known that wood makes up somewhere around 50% of the flavor profiles of American whiskey, so it's only right that we spend a bit of time trying to understand exactly what impact that is. If you are looking for a primer on how the standard barrel imparts flavor to the final product, this isn't exactly that. This episode is dedicated to companies and bottlings that have an intentional focus on doing something slightly different with wood to create new and unique flavor profiles. (laughs) 
Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truth, half-truths, and outright lies, and decide if truthiness even matters. Globally, oak is the primary barrel choice for spirits of all kinds. It's ideal because of its strength and durability. The ability to manipulate the wood and create a watertight cask is essential to its utility. It doesn't hurt that it is a prolific species in many different places across the globe. In the U.S., when we talk about bourbon specifically, we focus almost entirely on American oak. It is considered one of the sweeter oaks that exist with more vanillin compounds. It creates strong aromas and flavors that can range anywhere from dill to vanilla, spice to coconut. It's what makes bourbon uniquely American, and this flavor profile that it imparts. But what happens when you really decide to nerd out on American oak barrels specifically? You end up with one of the most extensive and probably expensive bourbon experiments ever taken. Before I really, really understood the bourbon boom was happening, I happened upon a bottling of a very unique bourbon in a liquor store. It was what I considered at the time expensive, but it ticked all of my boxes. The idea behind it was intellectually curious, so it came home with me. I spent the next few months really understanding the special nature of the product as I researched it. Buffalo Trace launched their single oak project to the marketplace in 2011. The tagline was it was a quest for the perfect bourbon, but that was nowhere near where this project really began in earnest. Some 12 years earlier, Buffalo Trace embarked on traveling to the source of the trees that they used to make barrels to hand-select 96 trees for an experiment. The trees were harvested and then milled down to staves, where they were split into two groups. Some were cured six months, others 12 months. After they were all air-cured, barrels were constructed from each tree section, both top and bottom. They were charred in different strategies and filled with different recipes, creating 192 potentially different expressions. Tracking and implementing such a task is monumental, but it doesn't stop there. Once launched, they released the barrels into the marketplace in smaller offerings to enable more hands to access the product. They launched a website and crowdsourced the ranking of each different expression to identify what was potentially the best five barrels of the entire experiment. And then they brought in a group of experts to name the top barrel. The experiment compared seven different variables across 192 barrels. The combinations created thousands of unique flavor profiles. None of the bottles are alike, and there's an incredible amount of variation that occurred as a result. It doesn't stop there. Once barrel 80 was selected, Buffalo Trace began the arduous process of taking the recipe from barrel 80 and recreating it for a commercial offering of single oak bourbon to potentially be made available to consumers in 2025. Subconsciously, I knew I had something unique and special, and I didn't open that bottle for a better part of a decade. Now all I have to do is keep that remnant of a bottle around for two to three more years so I can compare my bottle against the recreation of what was deemed the best bottle. Buffalo Trace's experiment is probably the nerdiest, most resource-intense experiment that you could do when trying to create a unique offering from the American oak barrel. 
Given the restriction of what it takes to be considered a true bourbon and the ability to innovate, it might appear to be shackled without some monolithic effort like what they did. How do you get more unique flavor out of an American oak? That aged and new charred oak containers part really hamstrings you, doesn't it? It's relatively common knowledge within the bourbon nerd circles that most of the color and flavor comes from the barrel within the first few years. The longer the distillate sits in the barrel, the less drastic the changes are. Essentially, the barrel becomes spent of its flavor-enhancing chemicals. Most of these barrels end up heading overseas to age scotch in a more temperate climate where the timeline for aging is in the decades. The aggressive climate of Kentucky has wrestled significant flavor out of the barrel in a shortened time frame. Once that initial aging is done and you get the flavor you like, well, you have a bottle to sell. Or maybe not. If you want to do something unique and stay within the confines of the rules, well, just let it age until it's done. And then put it in another newly charred oak vessel and let it do it all over again. This would be considered double barreling. It's not a new concept in the United States, but it's not something that many other whiskey creators are doing. These secondary agings in new barrels become incredibly cost-intensive since the expected aging in these secondary barrels is less than a couple of years and distillers are then unable to use those barrels to create a bourbon product. It would make sense that a company with significant resources like Woodford Reserve would be the premier brand to explore this. Woodford launched their first permanent line extension of the double-oaked product in 2012. Is it curious that two major players were experimenting with how to impact the flavor profiles of their bourbon utilizing the simple barrel in completely different ways? Probably not. They handcrafted these secondary barrels with a lighter char, but a heavier toast and attempt to highlight the more elegant notes that oak brings to the table. But it doesn't stop there. A handful of years later, they introduced a line called the Distillery Series that were intended to be bottles that reward on-site visitors, things that could only be purchased at the distillery. One of those offerings double double oak it really sounds like a group of marketing folks were sitting around a table trying to figure out what to do next and some person tossed on on table hey that that double oaked offering is pretty popular maybe we should do a double double oak if it worked once it'll work even better twice i know this isn't how it happened and i've heard that they had a very similar product in 2008 years before the double oaked product was in the market but i like reimagining this situation buffalo trace is doing a giant experiment on single tree barrel offering woodford reserve is launching their newest line extension with the double oaked product and double double oaked product. How do other powerhouse brands react? When Bill Samuels Jr. was handed the keys to the castle in the mid-70s, he was given one piece of advice from his father. Don't screw up the whiskey. With that thought looming over your head, what do you do to ensure that the whiskey stays great, but you also are able to make your own maker's mark on the brand? You launch a fully formed and tested offering. While Woodford and Buffalo Trace are working hard on barrels, Maker's Mark is focusing on stave profiles. In 2010, Maker's Mark launches its first new expression to the brand ever. They introduced Maker's 46. In the early days of its existence of that brand, most folks attributed the 46 to the number of attempts and experimentation that it took to get to the final product that Bill was after. But the reality is much simpler. 46 represents the flavor profile of the stave that is used for the additional flavor. And how do we get Maker's 46? 
It's a relatively simple process. You take stave profile 46 from the independent stave company, which is a seared French oak stave, and you stick it in some cask strength Maker's Mark bourbon and let it age for a while. This would be the seed that grew into the tree of the wood finishing series that we all currently enjoy. The hope is, is that you bring a softer, more approachable flavor from the Maker's Mark to the French oak table. French oak can bring in some spice and some chocolate, a more savory profile. 11 years later, the product is still raging through the marketplace, and it brought around the ability for us to not only have the rest of the wood finishing series, but cask strength makers offerings. A brand that had stabilized around a single offering, created their own brand from nothing, now has the ability and the interest in creating subtly different versions of their flagship offering. It's a single mash bill, but its flavor profile is being heavily influenced by the different ways that oak can change flavor if treated differently. What made French oak so appealing to Maker's Mark? Maybe it was the flavor profiles that the marketplace often considered to be more elegant than that of American oak counterparts. Or maybe it was an attempt to grab some attention from the wine marketplace. It's very common for some of the world's best wines to be identified as aged in French oak barrels. While it may be true that French oak creates a more refined profile in the wine industry, those barrels haven't been hit with high heat prior to aging. Those barrels aren't filled with high-proof alcohol. The experiment at least for Maker's Mark standards, was more limited as they were introducing the whiskey to a relatively small amount of French oak that had been seared. What's the impact if you introduce a bunch of French oak? This is a question that Davies County Bourbon attempts to answer with their bourbon finished in French oak casks. Davies County is a brand that was relaunched by Lux Row Distillers last year as an attempt to pay tribute to that particular county's contribution to the bourbon industry. They launched with the initial offerings of a traditional straight bourbon, a wine-finished offering, and a French oak offering. They combined an appropriately aged, weeded, and rye mash bill of bourbon into a blend and then stuck it into French oak barrels to create a different and unique offering. Considering this is yet another double barrel offering, you might question whether it gets that extra spicy profile that Woodford Double Oaked might pick up. This might be the best opportunity to compare the impacts of secondary aging in French versus American oak and its impacts. French oak tends to be less dense and has a tighter grain profile than American oak does. Given the geography, the greater portion of oak used in America comes from a location much closer to the equator with a less temperate climate. As seen with just about any kind of environmental impact, there's no doubt that climate around French oak will certainly result in a much different flavor profile. French oak versus American oak is a discussion that we will all love to have. Culturally, both sides can jab at each other as to whether the flavoring or profile is better from one or the other. But the end result is going to be what does your particular palate appreciate more. Our final wood of the day is one that is significantly more exotic and significantly more difficult to work with. Mizunara oak might be the next big wood trend within the whiskey industry. It's been bubbling under the surface due to problems with scarcity and difficulty to work with for some time, but major brands are taking notice of this incredibly complex wood. It carries with it a higher moisture content and a more porous nature, which leads to its nickname of water oak. The casks are significantly more prone to leaking, and combining that with the fact that it doesn't tend to grow straight, the source material for barrels that might eventually leak are already limited. That sounds like enough to prevent widespread adoption, but it doesn't stop there. The trees take somewhere over 200 years to reach maturity needed for cooperage, and the quick harvesting of trees resulted in a couple of decades where no one harvested any trees for barrels. 
all of the Mizunara casks that existed were just being reused. If, and that's a really big if, a distillery can get their hands on this incredibly difficult to acquire cask, how do you mitigate the propensity for leakage? You've acquired barrels, made a distillate, but you don't want the contents to end up on the ground. Whether these difficulties were problems the folks over at Broken Barrel Whiskey were trying to solve or not, they certainly have a unique solution. Broken Barrel, almost self-explanatory in its nature, finishes their selected whiskey in barrel staves. They actually break down the barrel into just its wood components and then put the wood components in the whiskey to age. They source great young whiskey and finish it with chips from the staves of the barrels. The expected impact of the Mizunara is a more herbal or spice-based note, and the inclusion of five-year-old Kentucky and four-year-old Indiana corn whiskeys should bring that of the sweetness. A few other major brands are exploring this Mizunara cask finish concept, but they come with a far less affordable offering. The folks at Broken Barrel are making available something that is generationally unique and potentially unobtainable in the near future. The multi-use nature of wood has made it an essential building block of humanity and culture, providing warmth, creating refuge, pioneering transportation, enabling advancement, enhancing flavors are all roles that trees play in our life, vital to our existence and essential to our continued enjoyment of these spirits. I'll try not to get so esoteric and bring it back around to the impact that wood has on whiskey and how innovation leads to increased enjoyment. There's tons of lore around how the first bourbon came to be. The idea to char the barrel before putting the distillate in is something that we'd largely like to claim. The use of new oak containers and laws around bourbon are likely the only things that we can legitimately lay claim to. But we can rely on American whiskey companies to continue to push the boundaries of what the landscape of offerings will look like. They will continue to innovate on simple American oak barrels. They will explore casks that contain exotic woods. They will explore different ways for that distillate to interact with wood. If we keep drinking it, they will keep making it, and that's exactly what this is all about finding a new and unique way to enhance our enjoyment of what some might already dub a perfect spirit. But how will we know it's a perfect spirit if we don't keep making more of these offerings to try and prove ourselves wrong? Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable.